People want more democracy, not less. It's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with Joy Silver. Outspoken from Radio 111. Now, here's Joy. God, guns, and the worship of the Second Amendment. Well, through the first five months of 2021, gunfire killed more than 8,100 people in the United States, about 54 lives lost per day, according to the Washington Post analysis. And this is already higher than 2020 in the same time period, and the year isn't even over yet. According to the Pew Research Center data, 2017, white evangelicals are more likely than other members of other faiths or the average citizen to own a gun. 41% do, compared to 30% of Americans overall. And by the way, that was in 2017. So it's a pick and choose substantiation from the Bible with white evangelicals quoting from the book of Luke and the words of Jesus, who supposedly said, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one rather than from the book of Matthew, which attributes these words to Jesus, for all they who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then there is the book of Isaiah, where we find the phrase advising believers to beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. And by the way, what happened to turn the other cheek? I think we can safely say that this image of a strong masculine protector was always a white racial idea. This use of the Bible for justification of slavery dates back to pre-Civil War times. And by the way, that is how the KKK remade itself. Gun ownership itself is part of a larger worldview where ownership is akin to the idea of the battle between good and evil. And you have to subscribe to the belief in a supernatural evil, protecting the flock from, well, other people who own guns. It's a fear-based idea, and ironically, not one of strength. And before we bring our first guest up, I want to say something about the Wild West mentality, which is somehow based in the zeitgeist of rugged individualism. Do you know there was more gun control in Dodge City than there is today in New York City? And Tombstone had more restrictive laws on carrying guns in public in the 1880s than it has today? You had a car- you could carry a gun without a license or permit, but then you couldn't. Uh, well, today you can, but back then you couldn't. Everyone owned guns then because they thought it was a good idea to protect yourself from wild animals, hostile native tribes, and outlaws, Hollywood portrayals notwithstanding. But when you came into town, you had to check your guns if you were a visitor and leave your guns at home if you were a resident. So today, to talk about that Wild West mentality, actually in the form of law enforcement, is our guest, Jessica Pishko. She describes herself as a writer and a lawyer who focuses on sheriff accountability. She's working on a book about sheriffs. So welcome, Jessica, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Let me start by asking you, where can we find your articles and where have they appeared most recently? So most recently I wrote a story for Politico um, about a sheriff who will very much be in line with what you were just talking about, Um, the sheriff in Arizona. But he has put together a group of like-minded right-wing sheriffs that he has called an army of patriots. Uh, As you rightly point out, they are very rugged Wild West and very much support guns. Um, I also do have done quite a lot of writing for other publications, 
including the New York Times and Rolling Stone and the New Republic, places that now my mind is starting to leave. Um, right now, you can find most of my work. I, I have a substack. It's sheriffs.substack.com, and it's where I put some essays and links to what I'm working on. Could you repeat that uh, link again for our listeners? Oh, sure. It's, it's sheriffs, S-H-E-R-R-I-F-F-S, dot substack, dot com. Well, that's great. And um, you send out a newsletter on all of the articles that you're writing about that, right? I do. I send usually a weekly newsletter about current events related to sheriffs as well as what I'm working on. So what, 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 how did you get interested in writing about the sheriffs? So it's actually kind of an interesting path. Um, I had previously been doing a lot of work in criminal justice. Um, I'd always been interested in that area. Um, I was primarily focused on prosecutors and prosecutorial misconduct, which led me to do a lot of work um, around prosecutor elections. Around the same time, I became interested in sheriffs because they're another elected official in law enforcement. And because I had been working in that space, I was very curious to see if some of the lessons that we had learned working with prosecutors might translate to sheriffs or what the differences might be. So do, do you, which do you, you moved over from the prosecutors and now you're kind of zeroing in on sheriffs. And I think you're, you're working on a book about that? That's correct, I am. Yeah, so what did you find? I mean, do you find it as a threat to democracy or how are you looking at this sort of from a national way? Because you seem to be finding a lot of sheriffs who have similar thinking across this country. So the main idea behind my book is that we are facing what I might call the rise of the sheriff, um, by which I mean that since the election of Donald Trump, we've seen a real resurgence in national interest in the office of sheriff. Now, of course, the office of sheriff has been in the United States for quite some time. It was an office imported from England. So it, it was a, a mostly a office focused on tax collection it was this kind of like the person who would come and take your property if you weren't paying your taxes. Um, over time in the United States, the sheriff became more of a law enforcement official with a lot of power in the West and the South in particular. Um, I think that while certainly sheriffs have been doing what they do for a long time, the current crisis of mass incarceration, so we know that we have more people in this country incarcerated in both jails and prisons. So sheriffs are in charge of jails, which makes them a primary driver of incarceration. While at the same time, we see them involved in a lot of national politics, particularly in terms of immigration and gun control, hmm. which, of course, are two topics of, for which people have a lot of feelings and there's a lot of polarization. Now, I know that you um, you have uh, concepts uh, and you have background in an idea called posse, and I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, comitatus? That's right. How's uh, my Latin? Did I do okay? <laughs> I think it's, I am always unsure how to say it. I say posse <laughs> comitatus, but I confess I never studied Latin. Um, it's, a, it's a word that literally means the power of the county. 
so I think, and I think people have heard the word posse before, meaning, right, meaning a group of people. So it's a kind of a colloquial term. Um, so posse comitatus is literally the power of the county. And in the olden days, it meant that the sheriff could call up what was essentially a small militia to go and either uh, catch someone who they thought had done something bad in the you know pre-civil war south sometimes they might call militias to catch uh, what they thought might be runaway enslaved people in california in the west in particular um sheriffs would call up militias to chase out sometimes they served as sort of a quasi military function so they might be chasing away like uh, there were native people, people for coming from Mexico, or they served as sort of local police because there wasn't there wasn't necessarily a big difference between the two. Um, around the 1950s, a man named William Potter Gale, who was a Klan member, an avid racist, uh, an avid anti-Semite, was very upset about the desegregation of schools in the South. And so if you could put yourself in that time and picture when the U.S. had to send National Guardsmen to help kids go to school. Um, this was very upsetting to William Potter Gale. Uh, among He was active in a lot of different movements. He ran for president. He kind of was a leader in the tax, what would become the tax evasion movement, if people are familiar with that, and sovereign citizens. But one of his ideas was posse comitatus by which he meant that the sheriff had the power of the county by which he could stop the federal government from enforcing federal law. Mm. Specifically, he was thinking about that local sheriffs should stop National Guardsmen from desegregating schools. Um, That was his quite specific thought. The idea has sort of gotten cycled around today you will probably hear it if people are talking about quote second amendment sanctuaries right actually kind of a related idea yes that uh those would be something to the effect of the sheriff will refuse to enforce gun control we also hear it a lot in terms of vaccine mandates is probably something people have heard about um that is the idea of posse comitatus um while i think that the people using it today would not or certainly not arguing for school segregation. It is important to remember that it comes from those roots, um, similar roots to Christian reconstructionism, which I think is something you alluded to in your introduction. That It's interesting. It, the, although the argument is in school segregation, it certainly is the segregation of educational text and how history is going to be taught to. In fact, a big, um, on on many sites, like the John Birchers, for example, seems to be right in line with the Constitutional Sheriff's uh, Peace Officers Association and certainly Oath Keepers and certainly all of these, uh, these organizations that kind of all fall in line with the idea that they're going to protect the children by involvement in schools that are then going to dictate what can be taught to children. And, and interestingly, it's all about keeping out the history of America and its racial policies. So there's a, it's a different tactic for segregation because it's segregation of 
the mind of the American public. I think that's an excellent point. Um, I would point out that the John Birch Society was intimately tied to William Potter Gale. He was um, one of the early people who greatly influenced the John Birch Society. And the Oath Keepers did come from the constitutional sheriff movement. So you're right to the extent that there are links between all of these groups. Um, You know, I would say that this current sheriff movement does try to make their um, ideas more palatable in a political sense to the extent that they take away some of William Potter Gale and the John Birch Society's overtly racist uh, tone, I think. But I, I do believe that that is being done specifically because these are elected officials and there is a sense that they need to be, I think, palatable enough for people to vote for them. I, I- We are speaking to Jessica Pishko, and we'll be back. Jessica, stay with us for Outspoken on Radio 111. She's fierce. She's bold. She's outspoken. Here's Radio 111's proud progressive, Joy Silver. Welcome back, everybody. And before we continue with our guest today, Jessica Pishko, I'm going to ask the question of the day. Which politician received more money for, and I will give you a hint, his campaign in 2020, who received the most money from the NRA. Text us the answer at 760-699-0202. That's 760-699-0202. So, Jessica, let's continue our conversation because it's very interesting to me, and I'm really happy to have you here as our guest today. I want to continue a little bit about these sheriffs and their positions as, as electeds. Do you see this as a national challenge? I think that that's a really interesting question because for the most part, people see sheriffs as very much a local official. Um, so certainly the election of individual sheriffs is on a county by county level. But I do think that it's important to think about it in the national context So, for example, in the most recent round of federal police reform efforts, it was the National Sheriff Association that tanked uh, any sort of of compromise or agreement on qualified immunity and some of the other provisions that, honestly, police unions and police chiefs had already agreed to. So I would say that that points to if not a nationalization, a sort of desire on the part of sheriffs to show their power on a national level 
uh, we also have groups like the Constitutional Sheriff and Peace Officer Association, which you sort of alluded to earlier, are often called the Constitutional Sheriffs, um, as well as Protect America Now, which is a new sheriff group that formed just after January 6th. So I, I think that we could argue that there is some sort of national momentum building. The struggle, of course, is that there isn't really national legislation that could be passed because these are uh, officials created by county and state laws. Hmm. So that is a, that is a big issue. But when we're talking about the subject of insurrection against federal law, then can we not take it to that national level? I mean, I think the the most frightening thing to me, or the most the 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 one that causes me some anxiety for sure is this whole idea of the de- the ability to deputize people. I mean, you talked about in the old days when basically we were in territorial law because what you had described really was who were the, who, who was law enforcement in the territories before those territories became states and there really wasn't a police force or or a river, or or a a county sheriff's department per se. Maybe you had a marshal uh, maybe you had a sheriff in each town, uh, but they were in the territories. But this idea that they could decide, um, like you talked about the KKK, uh, what was the what was the name of that man? You you mentioned Gale, I think. Oh, it was. his name is William Potter Gale. William Potter Gale, yeah, and it, and I think he was the one who identified John Birch as there for the name of that organization. I think, Mr. Gales. But in any case, this idea that. Those sheriffs could stand up and decide to against the, for example, the National Guard. That is a very, that is a federal situation that we're dealing with there. What is the need for sheriffs to be able to call up militias and deputize and arm uh, citizens? <laughs> well, I, I think it's a very good question. I mean, this this ability to call up a, a posse. So you know, it, it's got interesting roots. Um, one of the things, too, I think sometimes we think of posses and militias as sort of a rabble, um, but actually they were and still are rather organized. So in California, for instance, the sheriff would call up a posse and they had a committee called the Vigilance Committee, which were vigilantes who decided who they were going to uh, go get, right? So they would say, oh, this person's a problem. We need to go get that person. Um, and the same with the sheriff's posse. So even basic things like when Ted Bundy broke out of jail, uh, a Colorado sheriff summoned a posse who went and looked for him. Um, he had run off into the woods. So even that was a, a, a kind of more modern instance of a posse. And today, I think we see the posse. Uh, there's various forms of the posse. So today we see it, I think, primarily in terms of something like volunteers. So in some places, we see volunteers who uh, join sheriff's departments and they might be part of the posse. There are also, I'll say, there's quite a number of small rural jurisdictions that hire quite a lot of -of out-of-state volunteer deputies Mm. um, who only need need to work approximately one day a year in order to get a handgun license. It's something that's done quite a lot so they can get around handgun laws. Because in most states, if you are a uh, deputized law enforcement officer, you can carry a concealed gun even if it's not legal in that state. Wow. 
Well, I, I, <laughs> I think that there's a, there are some big issues there. This has been Joy Silver with Radio 111 on Outspoken. Jessica, I want to thank you for coming on the show today, and we'll be calling you back soon. So thanks so much. Thanks so much. Turning back the ugly wave of hate that seeks to divide. Joy Silver is Outspoken on Radio 111. Question of the day has not yet been answered. Which politician received the most campaign money for his campaign in 2020? It's really, really easy. Text that answer to 760-699-0202 and we'll give you a shout out right here on the station. You know, our show today is God's God Guns and the Worship of the Second Amendment. And given the original purpose of the Second Amendment, you would logically think that if you have a standing army, then the local citizenry no, no, no longer needs to serve as its militia. And the Second Amendment, well, becomes simply void of its purpose. These founding fathers of ours expressed that uh, every citizen be a part-time soldier to protect the nation against foreign, comp- foreign countries in the absence of a national army. And in fact, until 2008, the right of individual citizens to bear arms existed only within the context of participation in the militia. That is until the decision in the case of District of Columbia versus Heller. It was decided that the ban on registering handguns and the requirement to keep guns in the home disassembled or non-functional with a trigger lock mechanism violated the Second Amendment. And of course, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was among the dissenters of that decision. So today we have with us Dylan Millette calling all the way from Israel. He's our next guest. He was born and raised in Long Beach, California, and he worked for one year at a large gun store in nearby Cerritos during his time in college studying international relations in Arabic. After he moved to Israel, where he was an IDF soldier for three years, he moved to Tel Aviv with his wife, and uh, well, he's here with us today. So welcome, Dylan. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Thank you, Joy. I'm really happy to be here. What are you doing and what are you currently engaged in? And tell us a little bit about what's happening in Tel Aviv. Well, uh, right now I'm just sort of enjoying the living in Tel Aviv. I work uh, mostly in marketing, helping Israeli companies connect with a lot of their American market, which tends to be where a lot of Israeli companies' uh, customers and clients are. Um, other than that, on my spare time, I, I really love writing on Medium, um, which is how we got connected, and 
that's that's pretty much it. Well, that's you're a pretty busy guy there. How do you see guns as a form of self-protection? And tell our listeners about your experience working in that gun store. I know what you had written an article about the different kinds of people that come in to buy guns, and I think we're kind of interested in hearing about some of those types. Absolutely. So, for me, a lot of my perspective about guns has been altered during my time living in Israel. Um, Israel likes to occasionally get drawn up, I think, in a lot of pro-gun circles as being like this pro-gun utopia, which it's far from, I think, any American gun owner's Second Amendment um, advocator's dream of what a a gun um, society would look like. For instance, in Israel, the right, there's no right to own a gun. The gun is done with the permission of the state, and it's done with the idea of assisting the state in its own defense. Hmm. I think that that is the intent of the Second Amendment as well. However, in America, there's this perspective of using guns in defense against the state, which, to be frank, is sort of a silly notion in this day and age. I don't see how a community of AR-15-wielding you know, Americans, no matter how good intentioned, are going to stand up against a Cobra helicopter with, you know, Hellfire missiles or an M1 Abrams rolling down the street. <laughs> um, that's my personal opinion. Um, in terms of people coming in to buy guns, though, I mean, it was in Southern California, so you, you really see a lot of uh, everyday Americans, and most of the people who I saw there, the, we had three main types, I would say. Not a lot of hunters, but a lot of first-time gun owners, you know, they, there's a lot of rough neighborhoods in L.A. County, and they wanted to feel safe and, and get a gun, and um, I would sort of, you know, for a lot of buying guns in California, it's, you know, there's, sure, you want to pick maybe a gun that, number one, is uh, not going to go shooting through your wall and hitting your neighbor's property or your neighbor, um, God forbid, so you want to maybe have something like that, but also just the tertiary aspects of owning a safe and knowing when is it legally okay for you to actually use a gun in self-defense because there is a lot of very uh, it's it's very like a lot of not gray area so much but very specific times where you're legally allowed to use a gun and to be honest um, in Southern California at least from when I was there which is you know back in 2013 I would honestly say that pepper spray or just leaving your home, I hate to say it, somebody breaks in your house, just leave (laughs) if you can, um, because pulling a gun on somebody and using it, it's a great way to wind up in jail. I want to talk talk about that first-time gun owner, for example. My own father was in the uh, Philadelphia police force for over 35 years. He went from a uniform to a detective. And the one Mm -hmm. thing he would tell us... Um, and I have a sister, he would tell us girls that um, a gun in the home, if you have a gun in the home, that will be the gun that anybody who breaks in will use on you. (laughs) That was pretty much how he explained it, because uh, although he kept his own far away from our, you know, he was very safe with the gun in in the house, and, and I grew up with guns in the house because, or a gun in the house, because he was a, a, with the police force, but that was really his thinking, and he, he usually said that also guns in the homes um, uh, uh, supported domestic violence because that would be the gun that somebody would turn on their own families in in uh, fits of passionate rage or whatever the problem was in the house. These first-time gun owners, um, 
were they female? Were they male? Were they of a certain age? I'm trying to get a, a, a kind of a handle on the profile of that first-time user, first-time purchaser. Yeah, most of them were actually, um, we mostly had men coming into the shop, although I've been uh, led to, I've been told in recent times that there's a lot more women coming in to buy first, uh, to buy guns as first-time gun purchasers. But we got a lot of younger guys, I would say, guys in maybe their 20s and 30s who probably moved out to California for work, and the only place they could really afford was maybe a, uh, an apartment in a more, um, I'd say, dangerous neighborhood, I guess. And so for them, they, I think for most of them, honestly, just from talking to them, I don't think they ever envisioned themselves purchasing a gun. I think they sort of looked at it as, as a tool of necessity, mm. um, which is, you know, very sad to say that that's looking at their environment like I, I have to have a gun. We did have some couples coming. Um, mm. Usually, it was always it was almost always the man purchasing the weapon, mm-hmm. um, and that that was pretty much it. That was usually the people who came in for their first time gun. Now, did this first time gun owner have any? Ex- I mean, where did they get the experience as to how to use the uh, the instrument? So that's. The, most of them, I, from what I could tell, just talking to them, had no experience. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, look, I can, after being in the IDF for three years and going through a lot of intense training, I mean, we, you know, especially when you're practicing urban combat and you, you, you always, you make mistakes. You know, you could be drilling 12 hours a day, 16 hours a day for months on end, and you're still going to make mistakes. And so for somebody coming in, God, you know, hopefully nothing ever happens to these people, uh, and it's just sort of a peace of mind thing, but if it does, and they, they have to defend themselves with your adrenaline spike through the roof like that, I really don't see them being terribly effective with that weapon unless they're constantly training themselves and pushing themselves and, and having a qualified instructor show them how to properly uh, defend in a, in a very close-quartered environment. Uh, with a gun. This is a this is a big hazards to families, I would think too. And we also know that there's a preponderance now of using those said guns in uh, uh, suicide uh, instances, and there's a that's been higher too since more purchasers of gun of uh, guns have ha- have happened, particularly in this country. That's our first uh, personality, our, our first kind of uh, segment of purchasers for guns tell us a little bit about that second profile so the second person was always uh it it was much more of the guy kind of trying to i I guess it kind of it has a two-part you have the one guy who's a gun collector who and we uh, we had a guy come in he was an older gentleman and he was talking about how his last gun collection his wife had discovered it when i think a plumber came to his house or something and went into a closet and out came something like $80,000 worth of guns. And his wife had no idea. And I was like listening to this guy, just thinking to myself, like, for a lot of people, that's a year's salary right there. Like, that's down payment on a house money. Like, what are you doing with that, with this? Like, and, and he was back buying more. And I was just like, this is a very, like, weird and expensive hobby you have going on here. Um, and the other person I would say is, is you know, your typical young, you know, brash guy who his buddy went out and bought a $5,000 rifle. So now he wants to go out and buy a $5,000 rifle so he can show off to his buddy next time they go to the range together. And it was very much like the person who's very, like, concerned with um, 
the quality and the make and the model and they want the best in order to sort of show off or something rare and usual. Those are usually typically the um, the second person and they they tended to know quite a bit more about guns but more is sort of like in an, in an accessory sense I would say in the sense that they wanted to more of what the gun said about them, I think, is how I would describe it. Now, now that's very different than uh, somebody coming in to purchase a gun for stockpiling or concerned with end-of-the-world scenarios, right? I mean, you're talking about somebody who buys uh, the way people collect other things. They're collecting guns, and was it to have the most current uh, gun available? I mean, wh- what's the thinking on a collector? How does a th- collector think about these things? Well, a collector generally, from what I could tell, wants to have at least you know several types of all you know of all like the sort of uh, I guess various makes and models of guns. Mm-hmm. So you might have a collector who wants a revolver that shoots in you know X, Y, and Z caliber, plus and several makes of you know slide action pistols, plus shotguns, plus rifles. AR-15s, AK-47s, I mean, they can really go on and on and on, and they just sort of want this at-home armory. Um, for I never really got the sense it was for an end-of-the-world type thing. I, I really got a sense of, like, it was more you would collect it like a kid would collect baseball cards or something. Wow. It was just something to collect. That's, a, that's incredible. I think what, what's really amazing to me is that you had this uh, purchaser who's hiding his guns, you know, the way anybody else with an addiction would be hiding their addiction from a family member. It feels like that. They didn't want the partner to know that they were spending all this money that could be used for something else, and they didn't want them to know the extent of it. I mean, this is, uh, this is almost classic uh, addiction behavior. That was exactly my thought when he was telling me about it too. And and then to make matters worse, after he his you know he sold the guns, now this guy's back in buying more. It, it's the classic guy gets up from the casino table to go to the ATM to get more cash to go back to the casino table. And I'm just like, I'm seeing a guy like this, and 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 there were quite uh, a hold few. Hold on, Dylan. Dylan, we're gonna yeah? we're gonna ask you to hang in there. This is Joy Silver with Radio 111 on Outspoken. has a voice and she's not afraid to use it radio 111 presents outspoken with joy silver now here's joy and a big shout out to joan who won 25 points well this week there's social justice points she told us that yes indeed it was mr trump who received the most money from the nra so joan you were right. Once again, I think you texted us before and you seem to know the answers to most of our questions here. We're talking to Dylan Millette. Dylan, do I have your last name right? Could you could you say it for us? 
Uh, Malay. It's French. Ah, Malay. Okay. Uh, a mistake. <laughs> Dylan Malay. And he's calling in from Tel Aviv, Israel. And we are talking about his time in working in a gun store. And we were just describing how that second um, profile of the gun uh, purchaser looked. And we were talking about the collector. So we had one, the first-time user, and two, the collector. And our show today is called God, Guns, and the Worship of the Second Amendment. So uh, let's talk more about, um, well, let's hear what that third profile is about. Uh, sure. So for the third, who we tended to see a lot of actually in the gun store, um, was a lot of police and military. And or or ex-police and ex-military. A lot of guys, uh, mostly guys who had served before and were coming in, a lot of them, uh, police in particular, which I was very surprised to find this out, purchasing weapons for duty use. I did not know that police could just go to gun stores and with permission of their station, um, buy guns that they could then use um, while, uh, while on patrol or while undergoing some sort of assignment. Um, but we saw quite a few of that. You know, what was interesting to me um, and, and was what you wrote in Medium, and uh, that's, this was the, the, the thing that made me want to contact you. What you said was that these issues that we have about guns uh, cannot be solved by necessarily by gun legislation because there's a deeper issue connected to guns, uh, particularly here in the United States. And so... It was more about identity. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, coming like having a lot of people come into the gun store. And just to make it clear, I myself, I grew up in a, in a house that didn't have guns. And most of my friends and their families didn't have guns. And so I was very unfamiliar with the gun community. And to, so to make it clear, most people are they're wonderful people. They, they just like guns, and I'm a, I, as a, talking as a guy, I also like guns. They're a ton of fun to go out of the desert and shoot at targets. It's, it's great. Um, but it was with a sort of passion that people spoke about not wanting their guns taken away and, and really speaking with this sort of anger or fear. Uh, it, it really caught me off guard. And, I mean, one thing, when I first started working at the gun store, it was shortly after, I don't remember the exact legislation that was passed, but there was some anti-gun legislation, and as a result, sales skyrocketed. Mm. And the messaging seemed to be, your guns are going to be taken away. It was taken to a very extreme position, and that was not at all the case. I believe California had just legally required all guns to be maximum 10 uh, bullets per magazine. I think that was it, mm -hmm. and people lost it. And as a result, gun sales shot through the roof. Um, and I think there was this very much sense of losing, like they're losing what gave them that feeling of security and safety and protection and ability to combat violence and combat any sort of attack, um, which, I mean, to me is, after having lived abroad in a society where it's mostly, you know, Israel is a relatively gun-free society, um, coming back to the States, and I'm actually going to be flying back in almost a week and a half, I get nervous walking around 
and and encountering people who get upset because you just you never know. You never know who's got a gun in the glove compartment or in their waistband. It really makes things kind of tense for me to but, just sort of keep in the back of my mind. Like you don't know who, who you're talking to exactly. Well, one of the one, um, of, one of the things you pointed out though was the identity of masculinity. Yes, and and for that because I think. I sort of look at a lot of society now um, where, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, of course. You know, I work in an office, and I'm personally very happy about that. And, and I, But I think there's a lot of men who are questioning their place in this very rapidly changing society and what it means for them to be a man. And, and I think a lot, of, a lot of men want to very noble things. They want to feel useful. They want to feel like they're able to protect the people they love. And I think for a lot of people, that idea of protection is very much physical and being able to physically stand up to danger. And you know, people call guns the great equalizer. Well, um, I want to th- so- I'm going to ask you, we have a few seconds here, Dylan. I'm ha- really thrilled that we had you on the show today. Standing up for guns as a definition of masculinity. How do we, how do we solve that issue? Thank you for being our guest today. We still have a lot to talk about. I'll have you back on the show, Dylan. Thanks so much for being here on Outspoken with Joy Silver and Radio 111.